And we're back with Andrew Collins, the first female pharaoh, Sobek Neferu, goddess of the seven stars. Um, When she took her own life, uh, she would have been surrounded, I I would presume, by uh, priests who were dedicated to the god Sobek. Sobek, uh, she would have had a retinue of, you know, advisors and so forth. Would they have all been obligated to take their own lives as well? Um, no. I, I think that the priori- priority would have been to uh, allow her body to be, you know, given the correct uh, rituals and rites of passage into the afterlife. Um, I think this would have been the absolute priority. Um, and of course, there, there's no guarantee that that actually happened. Um, because if she was buried in secret, then she wouldn't have had the correct temples that would have been constructed for that purpose. These are known as the Valley Temple and the Mortuary Temple. And in each one, different rites take place before the body can be finally interred in either the tomb or the pyramid. So, you know, we don't know whether this actually took place. And if that's the case, then if our belief in, let's say, immortality and the afterlife is real, then what actually happened to her spirit? What happened to her soul? You know, is it, did it reach the afterlife in the way that it's supposed to, or is it still out there somewhere? And the reason I, I say this is because you think of Tutankhamun. I mean, his tomb was found in 1922. Before that time, we knew nothing about Tutankhamun at all. There was a couple of references to him. You know, he was simply a name. But then, obviously, the discovery of the tomb makes him probably the most famous pharaoh of them all. You know, and his name will be remembered forever now. And is that not a form of immortality in its own right, the fact that you're remembered and never forgotten? Um, And quite clearly, those pharaohs that are almost forgotten because the ritual didn't take place or because their tombs are ransacked or whatever in antiquity... You know, do they reach the afterlife? Do they have that same type of immortality? And I think what we need to do here is to reestablish her as an important figure in Egyptian history. And just maybe that will put her back in the place where she should have been all the time and will give her that immortality. Uh, Had her enemies um, gotten to her, her body first, would they have honored honored her wishes, or would they have discarded her body in a dishonorable fashion? I think it's probably the latter. I think it would have been discarded in a dishonorable fashion, yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why she probably took her life when she decided that she wanted to you know, leave this world. And then, obviously, it would have been up to her closest followers, uh, including, as you quite rightly said, probably priests of Sobek, um, to bury her and to bury her in secret. And as I said, there was a pyramid that was um, made for her, um, but it was never used. So quite clearly she was buried somewhere else in secret. If um, if you had to, to to guess, where do you think her body, might, her, her remains might be? Where do you think her tomb is? Well, the most important thing for her dynasty, right through to her reign, was the Fayum region. This is this beautiful oasis area where you have the, the royal palace, you've got the temple of Sobek, 
um, the actual lake itself was seen to be sacred and associated with the beginning of creation as a part of her whole religion. So to me, it's got to be in that area. I don't think it's, let's say, further north at places like Saqqara or Dashur. I think that it's very clearly in the Fayum area. And if I've got to put money on it, I'd say it's on the north side of the Fayum Lake because this was seen as the place of the ancestors. There was a temple there, which is still there to this day, at a place called Kazrael Saga, which is this very strange megalithic temple made of huge polygonal blocks. I mean, it's the most mysterious building, I think, in the whole of Egypt. And I've discovered evidence to suggest that she was involved with the reconstruction of this building during her reign. And I think that, therefore, there's a good chance that her tomb is somewhere in that vicinity. Uh, if it's there, would would she have been afforded the same um, type of burial as uh, Tutankhamun, for example, would her, you know, sh- would she have a sarcophagus that's with, you know, gold leaf and 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 so forth? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, her, her sister Nefertar uh, was eventually buried in her own pyramid, a small pyramid in the Fayum area, close to the site of the labyrinth, um, and this contained a massive uh, sarcophagus, one of the biggest um, in in Egypt, um, and also it would have originally had uh, two coffins, one inside the other. Um, and inscriptions on it, which very interestingly um, crop up again uh, during the 18th dynasty in the New Kingdom um, on the sarcophagus of Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut is a very um, well-known female pharaoh, and all the indications are that she modelled her particular reign um, on Sobek Nofru and saw her as her sort of like spiritual mentor, quite literally. Um, so since your book has come out, uh, I mean, is there a revival in the interest in Sobek Neferu and, and, uh, you know, are there teams of archeologists now trying to locate where she's buried? Well, um, no, is the honest answer. Um, I mean, very little has been written about her up to now. I mean, she appears in academic books, and she obviously gets a few pages in um, books about you know, the kings of, uh, and uh, pharaohs of Egypt. But this is the first ever biography of her. I've pulled together every scrap of, of information about her, every mention of her, every cartouche uh, found on temple buildings, every reference in historical literature, not only from... Uh, Coptic Arab traditions, but also from ancient Greece, where she would appear to be referred to under the name Nitocris. Uh, this is the name that's given in um, uh, Herodotus, the so-called father of history that was writing about 450 BC. He talks about a female pharaoh in there called Nitocris, uh, which seems to unquestionably be her because it's written in a section that's all about kings from her, her same dynasty. And it said of this Nitocris that after her brother had been murdered, her brother the king had been murdered, that she assumed the, uh, the control of the country. Then it said that she took revenge on all of those that killed her brother. And that after that, she herself repaired into this room full of hot ashes and committed suicide. Now, this is a very strange tale, clearly 
um, that's been sort of distorted um, across time. But I think that what this is, is telling us is that this is the story of Sobek. It's the story of the death of her, 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 her brother, which I think that she certainly knew about the murder of him. Now, whether she was personally involved, I don't know. But the reference to the fact of, of her taking revenge on those that killed her brother, I think, was her, at the beginning of her reign, taking out anybody that was seen to possibly be, um, to, to rival what she was achieving. And as I said, you know, we're dealing with a, a, a different, you know, a different period of history where, unfortunately, for people to remain at the top, to remain in control of the country, they would have to do what they needed to do to achieve that and to stay in that position for the best of the country itself. You know, so if you were not ruthless, I don't think that you could possibly have remained on the throne for any more than a few months, let alone uh, four years. Why would Herodotus uh, have, have given her the name Nitochrist? Why didn't he use her correct name if he was, in fact, no. referring to her? Nitochrist refers to Neith, the mother of Sobek. Uh, and Neith herself is shown um, with generally um, uh, suckling two um, crocodiles, or two you know, crocodiles are suckling from her breath, I should say. Um, and she is obviously seen as the mother of Sobek, and it would seem as if there is every possibility that, Sob- that Sobek Nofru not only venerated Sobek, but also Nitochris, sorry, niece herself, you know, the goddess, obviously the mother of Sobek. So it would seem that inscriptions probably um, contained references to Neith, and there is one that I've, I've discovered that does seem to allude quite specifically to Neith. And I think what happened was that because she was buried in secret and because her place of burial was forgotten very, very quick, quickly, that her memory was distorted. In other words, although her name was Sobek Nofru, although obviously she was probably you know, the, 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 the person who would be um, seen as, as the, the patron, if you like, of the cult of Sobek, that eventually this got distorted, that she was almost like the mother of Sobek. In other words... Neith herself, hence the name Nitochris. All right, let's go to the phones. And Donald is calling from South Florida on the wild card line. Donald, good morning. Welcome to Coast. Yes, good morning, uh, Richard, and good morning, Andrew. Yeah, my question has to do with um, eternal life. Um, you know, about that. Um, it seems like um, this seems to be the topic with the, you know, with the whole hierarchy, uh, you know, and the burial and all the rituals to continue eternal life, and um, and then later on it comes at a later state where the Israelites become involved. They have a covenant with God, and he takes them out of Egypt and gives them eternal life with a covenant. That's my question. Well, I'm not sure what the question was here, Donald. Well, you know, it's like, it seems like there's two different, um, like, covenants, I guess you would say. 
one with the Egyptians and another one with the Israelites that were taken out of Egypt. Um, okay, well, let's um, look at some of these points. I mean, firstly, the Israelites were definitely in Egypt at the time of Sobek Nofru. Um, they were the Semitic peoples that were living in the Nile Delta. Um, and the story of Joseph almost certainly relates to the reign of, of Sobek Nofru, her brother, and uh, their father, Amenemet III. So, in other words, you know, Joseph was a major player in Egypt. I mean, the Bible tells us that Joseph um, became the most important person in Egypt other than the Pharaoh himself. So he probably was vizier, which is, you know, the term for the, you know, the, the, like the second in, in command in Egypt. And if the Bible stories are correct, then it would seem that there was some kind of famine um, that lasted for, for seven years. And this would seem to fit the evidence that we've got for her father's reign, because at this time, there was exceedingly high floods, not low floods, high floods. And when there is high floods, they will completely drown the land and they will not be good for crops the following year. Um, and so this would possibly have brought famine. And this has been pointed out by uh, a number of uh, Egyptologists and have said that the story of, of Joseph and the famine seems to match exactly what we know took place during the reign of Sobek Nofru's father, Amenemet III. And there's also evidence from the discovery of some statues of Sobek Nofru in the north of the country, in the Nile Delta, a place called Tel El Daba, um, that she was personally connected with this area. She may well have been brought up in the Nile Delta as a child. This means that she would almost certainly have mixed with Semitic peoples who had already settled in that city at that time. And this is interesting. And my colleague, the Egyptologist David Roll, um, has written a whole book about you know, Joseph's um, you know, uh, role in Egyptian history. Uh, and he actually um, cites uh, the discovery of, of a house very similar to um, those that were found in Canaan at this time, where a, a statue of a figure, a human figure male, was found in the style and dress of a Canaanite that he actually believes is Joseph. And this is contemporary to the time of Sobet Nofru. That's remarkable. Uh, Donald, thank you for the call. Let's go to the wild card line. Cheryl is in Missouri. Cheryl, good morning. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. And uh, good morning, Andrew. Excuse me. Um, Hi. Uh, hey, how do you balance this, these extor- historically complex thinkings without kind of drifting away? All the puzzle pieces are not entirely in place, and it gets especially complicated in regards to, like, uh, religion and such. Well, I, from my point of view, all I could do was gather every piece of evidence that I had from every book and also look at the theories of Egyptologists, because, to be honest, those theories probably count more than what I myself uh, write, because, you know, these are academics, these are scholars, and you have to look for the patterns. 
that they are actually uh, coming up with to base your own theories upon those. You know, in other words, what I'm saying is something which has already been said by Egyptologists, and what I've done is put that together to create a much bigger picture uh, and to create her biography for the first time. All right, Cheryl, thank you for that. Um, you're heading off to, uh, you're going to Egypt this November, is it? That's correct, yeah. I mean, um, we're going on tour uh, with myself and um, the Megalithomania crew, Hugh Newman. Um, that's, if people are interested in that, it's on andrewcollins.com. Um, and we'll, we'll basically be going in search of Sobek Nofru. I mean, obviously, we're going to all the obvious places as well, from the top to the bottom of Egypt, you know, including uh, the pyramids and everything like Nile Cruise. But I specifically wanted to go into the Fayum and go in search of Sobek Nofru's tomb, you know, or certainly to discuss where it might possibly be. And, yeah, let's hope that one day, you know, Egyptologists will take this matter seriously enough for them to actually go looking for Sobek Nofru's tomb, because I think it's out there somewhere. All right, we're going to uh, head into the break here at the bottom of the hour. Back with more of your calls through Andrew Collins as we discuss the first female pharaoh. Here is Joe Cocker and Many Rivers to Cross, taking us into the break on Coast to Coast AM. The first female pharaoh, Sobek Neferu, goddess of the seven stars. Andrew Collins is with us and again heading to uh, Egypt uh, in search of the final resting place of the uh, crocodile queen in uh, November and uh how, how can people get, uh, become uh, involved in that uh, tour? Um, just go on to andrewcollins.com. Uh, there's an event section on there. It's, it's on the front page anyway of the opening news page. So just click that and everything's there. Uh, the tour is arranged by my colleague Hugh Newman of Megalithomania. Uh, and we'll be going to all of these sites, including this strange megalithic temple um, on the north side of the Fayum Lake. Kazarel Saga, which is a, a total mystery. You know, it looks very much like something out of the Pyramid Age at Giza. You know, one of the temples there are made of these incredibly large polygonal, multi-sided blocks all slotted together. Uh, in fact, if you looked at it, it, you'd say, well, you know, this, this could easily be in Peru or, you know, um, some other more exotic place where a similar style of, of masonry was used you know, in former ages, um, and yet quite clearly here it is in Egypt, and it suggests, a, you know, a very, very ancient tradition. And I think that this area around this particular temple was seen as a place of the ancestors. You have settlements there going back to five to 6,000 B.C., um, you know, including stone circles, and the stone tools from these people would have been everywhere. So it's very likely that Sobek Nofru and her dynasty saw this area of the Fayum as a, the place of the ancestors, the place of the beginnings, the place where creation started. And that's why the crocodile god Sobek was so important, because it was seen as the most ancient god, a form of the sun itself that rose at the beginning of time. Well, if anyone could find her tomb, uh, Andrew, you know, you're the, the, the one that discovered those that enormous system of caves and chambers and tunnels beneath the pyramids of Giza. Um, is there any up there? How long has that been now? Is that about 15 years ago? 
that was in 2008. Uh, 2008. Caves were discovered. And, I mean, nothing has happened since that time, well, other than the fact that a whole TV show um, focused around Zahi Hawass, you know, the, 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 the highest-profile Egyptologist, um, showed him going into those caves for the first time. He didn't even believe that they existed, but a TV crew managed to get him into them. And he ended up saying this was the most exciting adventure he'd ever been on uh, in um, Giza. So, in other words, you know, he was absolutely flabbergasted. He had no knowledge that they were there. So, you know, if the, garden, if the guy that was in charge of excavations at Giza uh, had no knowledge of them, then quite clearly, you know, these were unknown up until that time. And, I mean, it was, a, you know, not just a privilege, but it was, you know, a sort of one-in-a-lifetime um, you know, uh, discovery for, for somebody like myself, you know, to, to actually track down their whereabouts. This wasn't just an accidental discovery. This took five years of research working with an Egyptological uh, researcher by the name of Nigel Skinner-Simpson, uh, trying to pin down exactly where the entrance to this underground system was. And we pinned it down to the spot. And I went there once in 2007, I never found it, and I just, just didn't, it was just too dark, just did not find the right spot. But then more evidence came to light of a diary account from uh, around 1820 that referred to these, you know, these cave, this cave system again. And, you know, through a very careful process, we pinned it down and said it has to be the same place. And so I went back there, and this time we, we actually discovered the entrance, just a small crack inside the tomb that led into this massive natural cave chamber that then led off into various different directions. And we got as far as we could go with, without, you know, without um, proper caving equipment. Um, the TV show, uh, which followed around Zahiawas, also went in there, and they you know, went down a, a, a fur, even further. But they claimed on the actual TV show that it ended there. But the archaeologists involved have been in touch with me, and they said, no, it does continue on. And it can, continues on in the direction of the second pyramid. Um, not the first pyramid, the Great Pyramid, the second pyramid. And um, this was supposedly the location of the lost tomb of Hermes, Trismegistus. Hermes, the, the, tri, the thrice greatest. Um, it said that he is buried there, holding in his hands what's known as the Emerald Tablets. And these supposedly contain inscriptions which are the secrets of creation and this is associated with a secret chamber somewhere underneath the second pyramid i mean this this should be one of the considered one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in history uh, why isn't it um the simple answer is that i'm a non-academic i mean my background is journalism um which is obviously you know why i write the books so if a non-academic discovers something, then either it, it's got to be ignored or it's got to be claimed that we knew about it all along. And, I mean, I went to Zahi Hawass and sat down in his office um, and, you know, showed him the pictures of what we discovered. And he just sort of threw his arms up in the air and says, you know, you know there is nothing there. We knew all about this. Um, and, you know, you have found nothing, basically. And yet, as I said, a few months later, he's shown on television going into these very caves for the first time. Clearly, he didn't believe that they were there. 
Um, but once he did, he, he, you know, he was just flabbergasted that they were there. But let's point out also that these are very dangerous, these caves. I mean, not only are they full of, you know, hundreds if not thousands of bats, but also there are poisonous spiders down there. I mean, we, we, we saw white widow spiders down there. Uh, others uh, since that time have, have seen other types of, of, of spiders down there that are quite dangerous. So, you know, it's somewhere that has to be treated with a lot of caution. But as far as the Egyptologists are concerned, you know, that they, they, I don't know. I mean, they've got better things to do, I suppose, um, than, than investigate it. And yeah, as I said, the one of the archaeologists that was involved in that TV show is Zahir Was. He said the fact that that's a natural cave system could mean that there's evidence of, you know, ancient humans there going back hundreds of thousands of years because caves would have been pretty rare in that area. They'd have been prime real estate. You know, there's no way that people would not have used them in the past. So it is a major archaeological discovery, and hopefully one day somebody will, you know, look at them more thoroughly. You found the clues to the entrance to this um, in this, you know, British Consul General Henry Salt's memoirs. I mean, I don't know. I've never heard of Henry Salt before, but how did you, I mean, how did you know to look in a British Consul General's memoirs for the clues? Well, well, I have to thank my my colleague Nigel Skinner Simpson for that. Um, He went to the the, the British Library um, and consulted some of the original material, but it wasn't enough to give us, you know, the full. Uh, you know, understanding of these diaries and what what was in them, um, we had to wait until they were actually published um, with a commentary uh, to actually read the, the, the full section. And this was in a, an academic book that most people would never have, have, have come across. Um, and there it was, you know, the reference to the caves and the fact that um, that he'd been in them uh, with a um, an Italian explorer. Uh, and had travelled uh, a distance of what they said was something like um, 300 yards, you know, something like 300 metres. And quite clearly, this was somewhere that had never been explored on the plateau before. I mean, we knew about every single cave, every single, um, you know, um, well, I say cave, I mean, you know, tomb uh, that had been constructed into the rock, um, every passageway. And quite clearly, this was something else. This was something different. That's why we knew it had to be set there somewhere and why it had obviously been lost for, for, for 200 years. And yet there, nothing's being done about them. No one, no, no further exploration. No. I mean, what's so interesting is that there's a brand new uh, museum um, it's called the, the Grand Egyptian Museum. It's just opening. And that's on the, uh, the southern, just beyond the southern part, sorry, the, the northern part of the Giza Plateau. And it will have a, an approach route from there going up onto the, the plateau at, uh, at Giza. And that will actually now go almost right past the tomb, which, which is known today as the Tomb of the Birds, where these caves are. And I find that very, very interesting. You know, will they you know, lock it away? I mean, shortly after we found it, they put a, a gate on it and locked them up anyway. Um, but... It's so interesting that this new path that will go from the Grand Egyptian Museum onto the Giza Plateau actually passes quite close to this tomb, which up until we found it, there was only one reference to it. And this was from about 1840 uh, by Howard Weiss and, and his colleague who had 
clearly been into the tomb and found the mummies of birds, showing that this was obviously a place of a cult associated with a god connected with birds. Um, and this was also a, a major clue for us because it obviously was associated with a deity, and that deity was most probably the god so uh, not so back uh, Sokar, who was a hawk-headed god that was seen to be associated with Giza and in particular its underworld, because um, the ancient name for Giza was Rostau, which means the mouth of the passages or the mouth of the caves. Um, and this goes back to dynastic times. So once again, it told us that there were caves to be found at Giza and that Giza itself actually got its original name from its presence, from, it, from its proximity to these caves. In other words, that was the reason why it was chosen in the first place for the pyramids to be built there. So do you think then the caves are the inspiration for the concept of the underworld? Um, well, yes, in a way, because the, the Egyptians believed that at night the sun, when it set, went through almost like this cave underworld, which was called the Duat. Um, and the Duat was seen to have a physical representation. Um, and this would have been seen in terms of caves. And I think that the original form of the Duat was seen to be beneath the plateau at Giza, so that what we went into was a form of the Duat underworld. Oh, man. That's, uh, and you found it. I mean, yeah. that's, that is absolutely legendary. Well, I mean, uh, the whole story went viral. I mean, it was um, you know, an incredible yes. discovery, um, particularly when Zahi Hawass, um, you know, when he gets to hear about it, puts out a blog saying, no, nothing was found, you know, nothing to see here. I mean, that, that was, you know, that in itself allowed the whole story to go viral. But as I said, he didn't believe in the fact that they were there um, until he was actually prompted to go into it by a TV crew who had read, you know, my book and had read the, the material relating to it and thought, oh, my God, this will make a great episode um, in... Um, um, in, in this TV show, which is called Chasing Mummies, by the way. It was called Chasing Mummies. And there was a whole episode called Bats. And that was just, that's it's called, just Bats. And it's all about taking Zahawas into this cave system. So check that out. You should be able to find that online somewhere. All right. Let's say hi to Justin in Fort Lauderdale. Justin, welcome to Coast. Oh, yes. Hello, Richard. Hello, Andrew. Hi. Hi there. Um, actually... My original questions kind of changed a little bit after hearing more of your explanation. I originally wanted to know why your struggles as to why they refused you to refuse to have you on a Wikipedia page. But as you continue talking and explaining yourself, it seems like it's a it's a it's a history that's being uh, hidden and as being secret. I know that in my area in Florida, they're changing all the road signs and all the, you know, they're like eliminating history from the past. And I, anyway, that was my call. Well, I mean, you know, this has been obviously going on for thousands of years. I mean, whatever might be seen to be going on today is simply a reflection of, of, the way that, you know, history is always written by the, the victors. Uh, and this is the same with the story of, of Sobek Nofru. She saved Egypt 
but because it was um, an inconvenient truth that Egypt had almost fallen during this dark age called the Second Intermediate Period, that the pharaohs that followed it just wanted to forget about it. You know, in other words, almost ignore the fact that it happened. And as I said, this is shown, for instance, in this king list, this list of the kings found at Abydos in southern Egypt, where you, know, you have all the kings coming all the way through to the time of Sobek Nofru, and then she's missing, and all the kings following that through to the 18th dynasty that ruled during this Dark Age period, um, which was, by the way, a completely confusing period. You know, all the different dynasties overlapped each other or ran concurrently until the Egyptians managed to get rid of these Hyksos kings, sent them packing, sent them back into Canaan, and that then began the new kingdom, the so-called 18th dynasty, where all these great kings rose up, you know, like, um, you know, Tutmosis, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, um, Hatshepsut, all the rest of it. They're the, you know, many of the kings of the, the, the 18th dynasty. And of course, the 19th dynasty would bring us all the great Ramesses, you know, Ramesses II, Ramesses III, etc., etc. None of that would have happened without Sobek Nofru. And as I said, what I've done in the first female pharaoh is to bring together that story for the very first time, just to show how important this woman was, not just for Egypt, but for the world. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, in, in a time when women's rights are so important and, you know, you know, she should be recognized for the achievements that, that, that she made in Egypt. And, you know, so that's what I've tried to do. Well, she is now, and uh, as you as you point out, her her um, her resurrection is her legacy, and yeah. so um, she has been resurrected in large measure thanks to you, Andrew. Great job. Nice she live again. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Collins, the first female pharaoh, Sobek Neferu, goddess of the seven stars, available at Amazon and wherever good books are sold. Andrew, thank you. That's my pleasure. Thank you. For George Norrie, George Knapp, Lisa Lyons, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galanti, Michael Cozio, Donna Walker, Chris Boros, Tim Banal, and Lex Lonehood, I'm Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. Until next time, so long for now. <laughs>